Welcome to the Christchurch London podcast. This is a talk from our Bethnal Green service. To find out about upcoming talks at each of our services, or to listen to other talks, please visit ChristchurchLondon.org. Good evening. It's great to be with you. Does everyone have a sweet? Yes, uh, you may go ahead and eat them. Um, I'll keep talking over the rustling. Um, I'm not going to have one because I've got to speak, but you enjoy them. Um, they are honey and lemon laxatives with... Um, <laughs> It's not true, but it's interesting to see how trusting you are. That would have been way too easy. Actually, one of them is a laxative, and it's up to you to find out. No, again, that's a joke, that's a joke. Um, go for it. Okay, the challenge is to see how long you can make your sweet last, and the winner wins all the leftover sweets. Woo! So, um, a couple of weeks ago, I was at our local library, and... Um, by the door in our library, they always have a recommended section. I always find it interesting to see what particular themes they are recommending, what they think people should be or want to be reading about. And as I walked in, I found that this recommended section this month was all on the theme of happiness. Loads of different books about how to be happy. But then, I mean, that didn't really surprise me because happiness is an interesting theme, right? It's something that all of us are invested in. The pursuit of happiness is something that is important for all of us. But what did surprise me was that then I went over to the recommended fiction section, and that's actually what I was after. And I found that with the recommended fiction section, again, about a third of the books that were on there, in the titles, they contained the words happy or happiness. So I thought, this is interesting. I expected it from the sort of self-help section. I didn't expect it from the fiction section. Then what I realized as I went round just looking for various books was that almost every section in the library had titles that were about happiness or about the pursuit of happiness. It wasn't just the sort of self-help bit or the psychology bit or the religion bit. It was fiction. It was non-fiction. It was money management. It was raising family. It was cooking and uh, food. It was all about happiness. I looked online and I search for some of the top best sellers you just type in happy in Amazon and you just get streams and streams and streams of books many of which are best sellers my absolute favorite was um, top there on the sort of towards the left happy salads which is a total oxymoron <laughs> but um but there we go maybe that makes some of you happy I think this illustrates something quite Interesting, but something we actually already know, which is that the pursuit of happiness affects all of our lives. We long for happiness in every area of our lives. It's not just relegated to our thought life or our religious life. In every area of our life, we long for a wholeness, a fullness, a completion, a, a sense of happiness. Actually, I don't think happiness is quite the right word. I think it's deeper than that. I think we long for what the Bible calls shalom. It's a beautiful Hebrew word. Say it with me, shalom. Doesn't that just make you feel happier already? <laughs> Say that seven times a day and you'll be fine. Uh, so my book will say when I release it. But I, I think we long for shalom. And shalom is a Hebrew word that means peace. But it's not just like the absence of conflict. It's deeper than that. Shalom is when everything is working as it was intended to. Shalom is when everything is in the right place. Shalom is when relationships thrive. When you are feeling full of purpose and meaning. And you know what you're living for. Shalom is a salad with meat. Shalom is just everything being... Uh, I, I love vegetables as well. Uh, I was just joking. But uh, shalom is 
just everything being right, being full as it was intended to be. And the Bible says that shalom is available for us in every area of our life. It's not a surprise that when you look around a library, every category has this longing for happiness. Actually, the Bible says happiness, shalom, fullness is available in every one of those categories, in every facet of life. And today we are beginning a series on the book of Proverbs. And if I were to sum up something of what I think Proverbs is about, I think it's about that invitation, an invitation to find shalom and fullness in every area of your life. The book of Proverbs covers a whole load of themes, very practical themes about money, about relationships, about raising family, about your thought life, about the words that you say, about the people you hang out with. And in all of these areas, the offer is that you can experience shalom. You can experience wholeness and fullness. I think there's a beautiful riddle in the very first verse of the very first chapter of Proverbs, which Rich read to us a moment ago. Proverbs 1.1 says this, the Proverbs of Solomon for gaining wisdom. Now, this is actually only partly true because Solomon wrote many Proverbs. In fact, 1 Kings 4 says he wrote 3,000 Proverbs and 1,005 songs, which is very specific, 1,005 songs. I don't know why, but he wrote a lot of Proverbs. And chances are he may have compiled this book, but this book is not all his own work. There are whole sections, you can see it on the right here, whole sections that are written by various different people, and yet Solomon's name gets front and center, verse one. Why is that? Well, I think it's actually a pun. I think it's a play on words because the name Solomon means man of shalom. So even though he was the major contributor, I think the reason his name is up front is because the writer or the compiler wants you to know if you want to be a man or woman who experiences shalom, happiness, fullness, wholeness, peace in every area of your life, you get there through this book and the wisdom it has to offer. Wisdom leads to shalom. And it's that claim that I want to explore today. As we go through the series, which is actually going to take us up to Christmas, we will look at a whole load of very, very practical things. Today will not be very practical. But what I want to do today is explore that claim. Why is it that we need wisdom if we are going to get wholeness? Why is it not something else that we need? Why wisdom? And why on earth would we ever think that the place to find wisdom for all of our lives is in this ancient dusty book of Proverbs? And I'm going to take us on a bit of a journey and we'll kind of go all sorts of different directions, but I promise I will tie all the loose ends together before you finish your sweets, unless you've crunched them now, in which case there's no help for you. But, but has anyone already devoured their sweet? Okay, you, oh, oh, Anna Harris, you lose. But there we go, um, there's, there's grace for you. <laughs> so today I wanna look at this. I wanna look at the way of wisdom and the word of wisdom. But first of all, I think we need to ask, what is wisdom? What are we even talking about when we talk about wisdom? Well, the word that Proverbs uses is a Hebrew word, it's hokmah. And this sort of wisdom is not just an intellectual idea. It's not just about knowledge. It's actually a word that was used for artisans, uh, and it will make a great name for an East London cafe, I think. <laughs> Hokma. It's, it's like it's the language of skillfully making something beautiful. It's the language of, of craftsmanship. And the idea is that hokma, this kind of wisdom, will help us to craft a life of shalom. Proverbs uses this metaphor of our, our house, our life being like a house. And in chapter 24, it says this, by wisdom, by hokmah, a house is built. And through understanding, it is established. Through knowledge, its rooms are filled with rare and beautiful treasures. Three words, remember those words. Wisdom, understanding, and knowledge. And they're kind of interwoven words. They do overlap, but the foundational one is wisdom. Because if you don't have the foundation, wisdom, you can't build the house that knowledge and understanding fill. 
So the foundational word is wisdom. If you are to build your life like a well-crafted house, you need a foundation of hokmah. And it's a practical word. It's a word of craftsmanship, but it has at least three levels of meaning in the way that it's used in Scripture. The first is a very practical meaning. It's to do with the skill of living successfully. Hokmah, this kind of wisdom, is the sort of wisdom that if you apply it, it leads to success in every area of your life. It's not just raw academic knowledge. It's not just about having a high IQ. It's not just knowing that things work. It's knowing how they work. And it's not just knowing how they work from afar, but actually knowing how to therefore put that knowledge into practice such that you get to experience the fruit of success. That is what Hokmah is. It's practical. It's the skill of living successfully. The science journalist Daniel Goleman, who wrote um, quite a lot on the difference between IQ and EQ, quite famously, uh, he argued that um, the sort of knowledge or the sort of um, uh, wisdom, I guess, that really helps us is not just raw academic knowledge. He says this, academic intelligence offers virtually no preparation for the turmoil or opportunity that life's vicissitudes bring. That's not to say that intellectual knowledge is useless or that Proverbs is anti-intellect or anything like that. But you can have the highest IQ in the world, but you still won't have Hokmah if you don't know how to use it for practical purposes to experience success in life. So the first aspect of wisdom is practical. It's the skill of living successfully. But the second level is ethical. It's the skill of living well. You see, if you are to experience hokmah, which leads to shalom, wisdom, which leads to peace, you don't just need to know how to be successful. You also need to know how to be good, how to lead an ethical life, which is why the verses that uh, Rich read at the very beginning talk about gaining wisdom and insight, but also talk about growing in prudent behavior, doing what is right and just and fair. If you want to build a life shaped by shalom, soaked in shalom, you need ethical wisdom. And I think... I think all of us could name, I'm not going to ask you to name them, but we could think of people who have maybe one, but not the other of these two pillars of wisdom. I know there are plenty of people who seem to have the skill of living successfully. On the outside, it looks like they've got everything they want. They've got wealth, they've got power, they've built businesses from scratch, their relationships are thriving, and it looks like everything's great, and they genuinely have success, and that's wonderful. But some people have got that at the expense of ethics. Maybe they've got it by trampling on others. And Proverbs has a lot to say about that, and it's not positive. It falls short of shalom. It falls short of true wisdom. But the flip side is also true, and we don't often think of it like this, but there are many people who have brilliant ethics, absolutely impeccable ethics. They care for the, the poor. They really put other people's needs before their own, and they've got wonderful morals. But maybe they lack some skill in living successfully. Maybe they lack the, the, the common sense or the business sense or the emotional sense to be able to support their ethical lifestyle. And so you get people who've just got the best attitudes, the best values, but they don't, I don't know, the way they live, it drives their relationships or their bank balance into the ground such that they can't sustain their ethical life. And that also falls short of the shalom for which we were created. Because if you want to experience true fullness, true wisdom, you need both of these pillars. The practical side of wisdom, the skill of living successfully, and the ethical side, the skill of living well. Now, so far, none of that is particularly controversial. At least I don't think so. You might. But, um, but actually, many of the great religions and worldviews and philosophies would say, yeah, if you want to live a flourishing life, you need both of those sorts of wisdom. 
But Proverbs doesn't leave it there. It takes it a step further. It says there's also a third dimension to hokmah, to wisdom, and it's theological. That is, it's the skill of living spiritually. Proverbs 9.10 says, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And that phrase just comes up again and again and again and again and again all the way through the book of Proverbs. According to Proverbs, there is a spiritual dimension to the kind of wisdom that leads to a life of wholeness. And if you want to experience shalom, you will not be able to experience it in all its fullness without connecting with your creator. Now, maybe some of you are like, I was with you until then. Thanks for the sweet. And I get those first two points. But why do I need God? Like, I get that I need skill. I get that I need to be a good person. But do I really need God in order to experience fullness and wholeness? And Proverbs would say, well, yes. I mean, you may experience 80% of the way towards shalom, that there will always be a bit missing if God is not in the mix. And the question is, why? Why is that the case? And I think the answer from Proverbs is because God has actually created the world to work according to a particular pattern, to work according to the way of wisdom. See, wisdom is not just something you own, something you possess, something you learn. It's actually a way. It's a pattern you follow. And Proverbs says that the whole world is created to live and to work according to that pattern. The Bible, right the way through, but particularly in Proverbs and other wisdom books, says that God alone is wise. Wisdom is one of his attributes. He is the most wise being and the only one who can give wisdom as a gift. But it goes further. Because since Hokmah, this kind of wisdom, is the language of craftsmanship, it also says that God showed that sort of craftsmanship when he made creation. So Proverbs 3 says this. By wisdom, the Lord laid the earth's foundations. By understanding, he set the heavens in place. By his knowledge, the watery depths were divided and the clouds let drop the dew. God built the earth by three things, wisdom, understanding, and knowledge. Does that sound familiar? It should do. Because that's the very same pattern that he encourages us to put in place if we are to build a stable life. So what we see is this. The blueprints that God gives us for the life of Shalom are the very same blueprints he used when he set everything in creation in order. See, God had this pattern of wisdom by which he created everything. And essentially he says, if you want to craft your life successfully, you need to build it on the very same blueprints by which I created everything. Because God has made the world to run according to the way of wisdom. Proverbs goes even further still. And it's a weird book. And I don't know if you've ever tried to read Proverbs, but some of it is just really practical. It's like, do this with your money, do this with your time. Do and then suddenly you get to some chapters and it just goes all poetic. And you're like, how did you get from like that to that? It's, it's like when you're reading a book of poetry and you switch to an index or something like that. And it just suddenly goes from like poetry to really boring details. And you're like, how, how do I compute that shift? But Proverbs is a bit like that. Very practical stuff. And then you get to chapter 8. And it talks about wisdom suddenly in a weird, mystical, sort of poetic form. Not just as a principle, not just as a list of things you do, but almost as if it's a person. And in Proverbs 8, it talks about this strange creative force who was around at the time of creation, involved in it somehow. And it's like the writer is straining at the edges of language and is like, I've just got to talk about this thing as if it's a person. But we know it's not a person because it was there before people were even created. So I don't know what was going on in the writer's mind, but he writes this. 
This is in the voice of this woman, wisdom. I was there when God set the heavens in place, when he marked out the horizon on the face of the deep, when he marked out the foundations of the earth. Then I was constantly at his side. I was filled with delight day after day, rejoicing always in his presence, rejoicing in his whole world and delighting in mankind. So before there was anything, there was God who is all wise and then there was this creative force who was called wisdom and together they created everything that is and it all works according to wisdom so you get next slide the creator created creation through this creative force and and all of it is imbued by wisdom from the beginning of time to the end of time and from heaven to earth all of it is just surrounded by wisdom the one who is wisdom created the world through wisdom in order to work according to the way of wisdom. So wisdom is just in every part of how this world is set up. So that's why Proverbs says, if you want to experience shalom, if you want to live as you were created to, you need wisdom. Because wisdom is just behind everything. Wisdom created the world through wisdom to run according to wisdom. So if you want to live a life of flourishing, if you want to kind of get in line with your creator's plan, the only way to do it is through wisdom, right? Through hokmah. The world was made by wisdom, through wisdom, and runs according to wisdom. And God's original creation was full of shalom. It was the epitome of shalom. Everything was right. Everything was aligned. Everything was ordered. Everyone was designed to live successful and good lives in touch with their creator. God, the master craftsman, made this world perfectly good. And this character in Proverbs of this woman called Wisdom, she calls out again and again and again. Whenever it mentions her, she's crying out, she's calling out, she's shouting, she's pleading with people. What's she pleading? She's pleading that people in creation reconnect with their creator so that they can experience the quality of life their hearts long for, but they're currently missing out on. The invitation of Proverbs is that if you want shalom, you get there through hokmah. You get there by building your life on the very pattern by which God built everything. Are you with me? How many of you are still going with the sweets? (laughs) Kenny's like, (laughs) yeah, I didn't need to see that, but thanks. Uh, who, Who ate them already? Oh, guys, I'm sorry. How many of you are wondering why on earth I give you sweets? (laughs) Proverbs 24 says this. (laughs) eat lots of sweets (laughs) you're like yay best bit in the bible ever no eat honey my son for it is good for the body honey from the comb is sweet to your taste know also that wisdom is like honey for you if you find it there is a future hope for you and your hope will not be cut off wisdom is described a whole load of different ways In Proverbs, sometimes it's like precious jewels. Sometimes it's like treasure. Sometimes it's like this person that cries out to us. Sometimes it's like this feast. Here it's like honey. It's this thing that is sweet to taste. And it's not only just it leaves a sweet taste in your mouth. It's good for you, body and soul. Wisdom is like that. Wisdom affects every part of us, our spiritual part, our physical part. It has a nourishing effect. And I love the way it says, um, wisdom is like honey for you. If you find it, there is a future hope for you and your hope will not be cut off. There's this sense that wisdom is not just there in the moment and then gone, like it was for Anna who crunched the sweet and (laughs) is probably the only person not tasting honey now. The rest of you are just, you've got this flavor just lingering. Why? Because when you allow it just to sit there, it releases its flavor over time. Wisdom's like that. Proverbs says, if you seek wisdom, 
It's not just something that tells you, ah, there you go, quick fix to that situation. Actually, it lingers, and it does you good at a deep level. Now, I don't know what you think of the Bible. I don't know what you think of this book, and and about the book of Proverbs in particular. It may well be that you have a strange or strange relationship with the Bible. I know many people think of it like a book of rules and assume that the Bible is really just a a list of laws that we need to keep in order to appease an angry God, in which case it's more like just eating your greens. You know you've got to do it, but you don't really like it. But actually, Proverbs says no. It's like honey. It's like something which is sweet and beautiful and does you good. I don't know if that's how you've ever thought about the Bible, but actually it is God's good gift to us. And the invitation is that if you linger in it, if you allow it just to rest in your mind and in your mouth, if you think it through, if you have patience and you just let it sit with you, it will release this flavor that will give you nourishment in body and soul and a hope for the future. The promise of everlasting shalom. Now, the problem is, when we go out that door and we look at the world around us, it doesn't feel like the world is full of shalom. <laughs> it doesn't feel like, like it's running according to wisdom. Just as I was coming in here, I was just sitting in a coffee shop before I came in and I just checked on the BBC news alert and not far from my house in Wandsworth, a kid was shot today. I'm like, that doesn't seem like the kind of thing that should happen in a world governed by shalom. It feels like there is a lot of brokenness out there. And it is not the case that if you follow God, suddenly you get immune to all the pain. I wish that were the case, but it's not. And so you might well say, well, isn't Proverbs a bit simplistic? Because it doesn't seem the case that if you just follow the things written in this book, you get to experience shalom. That's not how my experience of the world works. And in one sense, you'd be right. But actually... The reason that Proverbs is there as part of not just a standalone book, but part of a little block called wisdom literature is because all these books together show the various different aspects of wisdom. And there are two books, Job and Ecclesiastes, which come as part of this package, which actually explore that very question. Why is it that when people follow the way of wisdom, they don't always get to experience shalom? And I can't explain all of that right now, but do go and read, the, brace yourself and then go and read Job and Ecclesiastes. But I think the answer is essentially this. Wisdom is not the only force at work in the world. Wisdom is crying out. Wisdom is telling us, get connected to your creator again and you will find shalom. But there is another figure also at work. And in Proverbs, this character is also personified as a lady named Folly, foolishness, who cries out to people, And essentially, Proverbs is built on the premise that there are two different characters crying out to us. Wisdom is saying, if you follow me, you will find nourishment. It will be sweet to your taste and it will lead to shalom. Whereas folly makes exactly the same promises but can't deliver on them. At first, if you follow follow, folly, it tastes sweet, but quickly it turns bitter in your mouth. And Proverbs is built on the idea that if you follow wisdom, you get to shalom. If you follow folly, you get to unshalom, the sort of unraveling of your life or to put it in meme form this is proverbs eight to nine in one picture next slide there we go (laughs) i'm proud of that (laughs) and uh if you don't know what that's about i can't help you just go on twitter a bit more (laughs) um but know that the luddites in the south had not got a clue what that was all about (laughs) and there you go they were like do we know those people no they don't they Here's here's the point. Proverbs is built on the idea that there is a tug of war going on in our hearts. 
and in the hearts of every person that has lived, and in fact in the heart of the world, if I can put it like that, between the way of wisdom, the way that God intended for us to experience shalom, and the way of folly, which is actually to reject God, and therefore to lead to the unraveling of life. And the problem, according to Proverbs, is that basically the world over thousands of years has chosen the way of folly over the way of wisdom. And and I'm kind of obviously joking with that picture, but there's something of like just the anguish on that woman's face, which I, th- I think you get when you read Proverbs 8 and 9. It's like, I am offering you life. I'm offering you shalom. Why are you going to this thing that cannot deliver on its promises? And I think that's the heart cry of Proverbs. There is so much for you. Your longings are not in vain. God wants to give you shalom. He wants to give you fullness. He made you for greatness. Don't miss out on it. Proverbs pleads with us. It cries out to us. Wisdom says, come on. If you want this fullness for which you were created, for which books in our libraries are all shouting about, you find it. How? By reconnecting with your creator. By building your life like a house on the foundation of wisdom. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Now, I don't know about you, but that verse raises a ton of questions for me, just two particular ones. Firstly, why fear? Why the fear of the Lord? Why not the love of the Lord or something like that? I would rather it said that. Why fear of the Lord? Well, I think the answer is the kind of fear this is talking about is not abject terror, It's not cowering in a corner, desperately hoping that God will just overlook you or not come near to you. It's not that kind of fear. It's more like the fear of being in a small boat on a vast ocean and thinking, this thing is bigger than me and it is out of my control and it could crush me in an instant and I can do nothing to tame it. And yet, it's also kind of beautiful being here. You know that feeling? That's the fear of the Lord. It's awe, it's wonder. He's standing in the presence of a mighty God who is far bigger than you, whose ways are not your ways, who could crush you in an instant if he wanted, who holds your life in his hand, and yet being blown away by his mercy and his love and the fact that he keeps calling out to us. is, You know, when Tanya read Isaiah 6 earlier, that's the fear of the Lord. It's holy, holy, holy. I'm a man of unclean lips. I live among a people of unclean lips. And yet, what does God do? He sends his angel to cleanse us. He gives us forgiveness. That's the fear of the Lord. It's recognizing his power and his might and then putting your faith in him and trusting that he can still lead you to shalom. He can still lead you to life. Whatever a mess you have made of your life, God can turn it around. That's fear of the Lord. It's faith, actually. It's like an Old Testament synonym for faith. One particular scholar puts it like this. Wisdom begins in acknowledging our need and desire for the creator to reveal how we might join creation's harmony. I love that way of putting it. The fear of the Lord is faith. It's recognizing, God, I am not right with you. I have been going down this wrong path and it is leading to the unraveling of my life. But holy, 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 God, you reach out to me and I don't know why and I don't deserve it, but I choose to get off that path and to get back onto your path. And if you will have me, I still want that life for which you created me. That's the fear of the Lord. It's faith. That's the first question that comes to mind when I think about this verse. The second is this. If the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, what comes next? (laughs) If the fear of the Lord is the first step, what's step two and three and four and five and six? Like, How do you move on after the beginning? And the answer is there just isn't another step beyond beginning. Because this is not the kind of beginning where you 
do it once and then you move on and you leave that behind. This is the kind of beginning where you begin to build a house and you lay the foundations in place and then you put the house up and you don't get to the end and go, great, and whip out the foundations. You never outgrow your need for foundations in a house. You try and take out the thing with which you began and the whole thing crumbles. That's the kind of beginning this is talking about. We never outgrow our need for the fear of the Lord. And if you begin following God with the fear of the Lord in place, that needs to remain in place if you're to stay as a stable building. The fear of the Lord is the beginning in the sense that it undergirds the strong and stable life. And if you take that away, you will not weather the storms. So Proverbs challenge, which goes beyond the challenge of, I think, any other religion or worldview, is that ethical living is not enough, successful practical living is not enough. You need this foundation, which is actually awe and wonder and faith in God. And that is not just something you do once and then you move on for. It's got to undergird everything. We must never move away from that state of awe and wonder and worship. That's the way to find shalom. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. So how do we build our life on that kind of foundation? How do we know what true wisdom is like? And what role does this book have to help us? Well, actually, this book is full of guidance about what a wise life looks like. It is full of words of wisdom. It's full of instructions and guidance. And there's this beautiful bit in chapter 1 where it depicts wisdom as crying out to us, giving us words that are calling us to our creator. It says, out in the open, wisdom calls aloud. She raises her voice in the public square. On top of the wall, she cries out. At the city gate, she makes her speech. Repent, then I will pour out my thoughts to you. I will make known to you my teachings. You see, God doesn't just say, hey, come back to me, and then I'll leave you to figure out how. Wisdom cries out and promises to make her thoughts known to us, her teachings known to us. And I love the fact that here, she's, she's in the most public place. She's at the city gates and she's on the walls and she's in the marketplace. Like, in one sense, that's the perfect place to go if you want to catch everyone. That's the most busy area of the ancient city is the city gates and the marketplace. But actually, it's also the noisiest place of the city. And the marketplace and the city gates were particularly places where you would go not only to buy and sell and to meet others, but to exchange ideas. Debates would happen in those places. So they will be full of various voices shouting out the ideas and philosophies of the day. And that's where wisdom positions herself, saying, here are my words, here are my words, here are my instructions to live a life of shalom. And I think that's an interesting picture of our world. Because our world is full of voices, competing voices shouting out, this is the way to wisdom, this is the way to fullness, this is the way to wholeness. And it can be very difficult to know which voices to listen to and which voices not to listen to. So how do we know what are the true words of wisdom? How do we know whether this book is worth trusting? Well, I think the answer is that Christianity goes somewhere that no other religion goes, which is that God didn't simply cry out to us. He actually reached out to us. Wisdom wasn't just a bunch of words. Wisdom stepped into this world to show us in a concrete form that God could be trusted. Wisdom took on flesh. The creator's creative force stepped into creation itself. And John 1 picks up a whole load of these different ideas that come through in Proverbs and weaves them together and says this, in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. And again, there's that strange mystery. Like how is this figure sort of both with God and somehow God? And 
it's hinting at the Trinity and it's saying he was with God in the beginning. Through him, all things were made. It's like he's there rejoicing over creation. Without him, nothing was made that has been made. In him was life, life to the full. And that life was the light of all mankind. The word, which is like the heart cry of wisdom, became flesh and made his dwelling among us. And we have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only son who came from the father full of grace and truth. Jesus is wisdom personified. As Paul said, Jesus became wisdom for us. God didn't just give us a collection of texts to read and say, here are my words over to you. He didn't even send us a teacher who was able to take those words and explain them to us. He didn't send us words. He sent the word. He sent wisdom itself in flesh. And Jesus is the ultimate embodiment of wisdom and shalom. He is the ultimate human being, God in flesh, showing us what it's like to live a life built on the foundation of wisdom. In Jesus, we see all the facets of wisdom come together. We see the skill of living successfully. No one has ever in the history of mankind lived a more successful life than Jesus. I mean, maybe not by world standards. He wasn't rich. He wasn't wealthy. He didn't have a great house. He suffered a horrendous death. And yet, in his 33 years of life, only three of which he seemed to do ministry, he started something that has changed the course of history forever. That's true success, and we see it embodied in him. In Jesus, we see the embodiment of ethical wisdom. No one has ever lived as good a life as Jesus and taught such incredible ethics. Even people who reject the religious aspect of Jesus' teaching can't help but agree that he was an outstanding ethical teacher. I mean, he was more than that, but he certainly wasn't less. Jesus' teaching, his ethics, have shaped uh, law, legal systems, justice systems, human rights for centuries. And Jesus embodies theological wisdom, the art of living spiritually. No one has ever been more connected with his father. No one has ever been more in line with God's will. No one has ever been more of an embodiment of shalom. Even when he was going to the cross to die the worst death, he was so in line with God's will, such that he was able to say, Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing. I long for these people to be reconnected with you to experience the shalom for which you intended them. Jesus never once followed folly. He never once got off the way of wisdom. He lived a perfect life. And his invitation is that if we follow him, we can find life to the full. Shalom. Jesus takes that kind of central metaphor of Proverbs about building your house or your life rather like a house. And he twisted in that kind of way that Jesus does. And he says this to his early followers in Matthew 7, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rain came down, the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against that house, yet it did not fall because it had its foundation on the rock. I cannot promise you a life free from pain. If that's what you're hoping to get out of the book of Proverbs, you're going to be very disappointed. I cannot promise you a life free from the storms that come our way. But what I can promise you is this. If you choose to build your life on Jesus, the storms won't go away, but you will be able to weather them. I know millions of people would testify to that. I have followed Jesus for a few decades now, and honestly, I've found nothing else that has given me the same sense of security 
through difficult times. He has been with me through hard times and through great times, through dark times and light times, and he has never failed me yet. And I'm pretty sure he's not gonna start anytime soon. His invitation is not that if you follow me, you will get shalom immediately. Everything will be perfect. Though eternally that will be the case when he comes back and makes this world new. But the promise is that when the storms of life come, your life will stand firm if it is built on the foundation of wisdom, faith in Jesus Christ. Proverbs 4 says this. The beginning of wisdom is this. Get wisdom. <laughs> like it's almost patronizing in its simplicity. The beginning of wisdom is this. What is it? Just get it. <laughs> and then it says, though it costs all you have, get understanding. And there's this weird paradox that wisdom is freely available to anyone. If you want it, just get it. Just take it. But it will actually cost you everything. Because to choose to take wisdom, to choose to build your life on the foundation of Jesus involves choosing not to build your life on foundations of other things. To choose to walk the way of wisdom means to reject walking the way of folly. And sometimes that means walking in a way that we wouldn't like to. <laughs> Living for values that actually cause us to put our own self-interest aside in order to live for something greater. And that can be painful and that can be costly and it can be challenging. But Jesus promises that if you do that, it will lead to life to the full. The beginning of wisdom is this, get it. And it is worth giving up everything for. It is costly to repent, to turn away from the way you had been going, the way the world is wanting you to go towards success and wealth and power and to turn to God. It is costly, but it is worth it. It's worth every penny. Get wisdom. I don't know how you are doing with your life right now. I don't know how you are doing in your own pursuit of shalom. It may well be that you're here today as someone who thinks of themselves as pretty successful. Maybe you have wealth, maybe you have power, maybe you have success, good relationships. Maybe you think of yourself as a good person, an ethically good person. Maybe you genuinely do put yourself behind the needs of others. And that is great, and that is probably God's gift to you. But have you ever still, despite your success and despite your good deeds, found that there's something feels like it's missing? That missing part may well be Jesus. And my claim, and I know it, may jar with you to say this, but my claim, and I think the claim of Proverbs is, you will never actually get what you are looking for. You will never get the fullness unless you put Jesus into the mix, unless you build your life on him. You could be the most successful and most good person in the world, but without him, you will always miss out on the fullness for which he created you. And so if you would like to get to know God tonight, I would love to pray with you. I would love to talk with you. I would love to answer some of your questions. It may well be that you're not ready to pray tonight, and that's totally fine. If you would like to, come and speak to the prayer team. Come and speak to me at the end. But it may be that you've got many questions you want to wrestle with, in which case, here are two suggestions. One, why don't you commit to coming to as many of the Sundays throughout this series as possible? Come along and hear the different aspects of wisdom and how God promises shalom. But secondly, you may want to look into that alpha group that I think Sarah talked about earlier, the connect group that's happening near here on the Roman Road. Uh, find out the information. It starts in September the 11th, and uh, all the information is on the website. Or do you talk to a member of the welcome team? It's a great way of exploring questions of faith. Maybe the band would like to come back up. It may well be that actually you're here today as someone who is already following Jesus. You have already decided to follow him, but you know in your heart that there's still something missing at times, that you are missing out on something of the fullness and shalom for which he created you. Perhaps when I talked about that picture of building your life 
on him, you were aware that sometimes you've let those foundations erode. Maybe you're aware that you are not living a life built permanently on the foundation of the fear of the Lord. Maybe even you're aware of times where folly has lured you and you have followed her and it's tasted sweet at first but then it's turned bitter and left you with shame and guilt that you can't shift. My message to you is this. As we worship, confess those things to God. Receive his forgiveness. It's freely available. And come back to building your life on him. We're going to sing and we're going to worship and we're going to focus on Jesus. I don't know what you've made of this talk. I don't know what you make of the prospect of looking at Proverbs through a few months. Uh, Maybe this has felt abstract and frustrating. Proverbs is like that sometimes. Sometimes it's really practical and sometimes it's poetic and sometimes it immediately helps you go, oh, I know what to do. And sometimes it just gives you a headache because it's talking about mysteries we can't get our heads around. But my prayer for this series is this, that we would grow in patience, learning to allow the word of God just to mull over and release its flavor, release its nourishing honey-like flavor throughout our lives. Tim Keller says this, Proverbs are like hard candy. If you just bite down on it, you get a little out of it. You may even get a broken tooth. Instead, you must meditate on them until the sweetness of insight comes. And that's what we're going to do in worship. We're going to meditate on the goodness of Jesus. We're going to focus on him and who he is and what he promises. We're going to focus on his love and recommit ourselves to building our life on him as our foundation. So why don't we stand and the band are going to lead us in worship.